Good evening, everybody. Good evening. My Bible's open up to Romans, the 13th chapter. Romans chapter 13, that is where we will begin Q&A night in just a moment. We will bounce around from the New Testament to the Old Testament and then back to the New Testament again. As tonight, I have three, I think, really good questions on various moral and ethical issues. That was really just kind of the best hodgepodge way that I could categorize these three questions together and and give them some kind of a label to work with tonight. We're going to get to those questions momentarily, but first let me extend a welcome to everyone, especially since I did not do that this morning. Macy told me this evening that she was very disturbed by the fact that I did not begin with my normal good morning, good morning, good morning. And so tonight, good evening, good evening, good evening. Glad to see you here. Glad to have those who are visiting with us. We appreciate your presence with us tonight. So glad that you've come to worship with us. Hope you've had a good afternoon. It's been a good day, kind of overcast, but a good afternoon. Maybe you've been able to get to do some stuff with your with your family on this holiday, but I'm glad that you chose to, to come and to finish this Lord's Day out with your spiritual family, worshiping God for this second time. I do want to say just a quick word about what is on tap for next Sunday, Lord willing. And I want to just kind of echo the note that I have put in the bulletin for the last three weeks. Next Sunday, during the a.m. and during the p.m. worship hours, I'm going to preach on the importance of Christians spending time together outside of the worship assemblies. Uh, We preach and talk about, uh, quite regularly, about the importance of spending time together in here, within the worship assemblies and the, the priority of that, and that's certainly an important part of who and what we are as disciples. But maybe we don't emphasize nearly enough the importance and the significance of Christians spending time together outside of these assemblies. That we need to get to know each other and we need to be on a one-on-one level. And I do think that we do a good job of that, generally speaking, here at Lakeside. At least that's been my observation. But as with many things, we can always do better. And so next week I want to try to encourage us even more in that direction. And as I've noted in the bulletin, I do want to encourage you to make some plans to spend some time with Christians outside of worship services next Sunday. Maybe that'll be during the afternoon time. Or let me especially maybe encourage you to think about planning something during the evening, after our evening worship assemblies. I intend to be very abbreviated. I'm going to set an own, my own personal world record for the shortest sermon that I have ever preached next Sunday night. And that is going to be very intentional And that is to give all of us maybe just a little bit of extra time, maybe an extra 30 minutes or so that we would not have had normally to be able to spend some time with our brothers and sisters. So maybe between now and then, if you've not already, be inviting somebody to maybe come to your house that afternoon or that evening. Invite somebody out to eat, a family out to eat somewhere. Got plenty of restaurants and options around here. Maybe plan to get a group together and going to go do something together uh, that afternoon. I would really especially encourage you, think about getting together with maybe somebody in the congregation that that you don't normally spend a lot of time with in a in a social sort of capacity. Maybe somebody here that you just don't know all that well and you want to spend some time to get to know them a little bit better. Let's be planning for that. I, just, I, I can't force that. I can't legislate that. But I do want to encourage that in preparation for the things that we are going to talk about next Sunday. That's next week, though. How about right now we do a little bit of Q&A with some questions that have been submitted to me that do cover just kind of some various ethical and moral sorts of issues. And the first of which is actually a question that I have had on the question pile for a while now. And the question is this. Should Christians participate in cash deals? Is that something that a Christian ought to be involved in? Now, let me clarify a little bit as to what we're talking about when we talk about a cash deal. Sometimes whenever we're buying something, sometimes the the merchant or the seller, they will ask, they'll ask, hey, 
Could you pay cash for that, that good or that service? And that may be because there's some, there's some fees or there's some administrative costs that go along with that. If you are a merchant and you accept credit cards, then of course you're going to have to pay some kind of a fee every time you swipe that card. And so maybe a merchant might ask, hey, do you have cash? Could you just pay for that in cash? And so someone may, may, may offer that. But sometimes folks want to be paid in cash because they don't want to pay taxes on that income. And that is actually where I believe. I didn't get to ask the questioner if this is where this is coming from, but I do think this is where the question is from. I really think that's probably the general tone and tenor of this particular question. That is, when there's a cash deal, and it seems to be that there may be kind of, might ought to be possibly some nefarious things going on behind that, Here's a person who's maybe wanting to try to get out of having to send Uncle Sam a certain sum of money, trying to get away from the IRS, and the IRS isn't going to be able to trace it if you pay with cash. Is that something that we ought to be involved in? And that does happen from time to time. I'm thinking about specifically sometimes with larger items, maybe a car or a boat. Somebody will say, hey, can you pay with cash? Can you just buy that outright? Maybe I'll even cut you a little bit of a deal if you could just pay in cash. So we kind of wonder, well, what exactly is going on there? Are, are you going to report this income like we're supposed to do whenever you sell sort things like that so you can pay your taxes on that? That's what we're supposed to do? Or is it possible by me participating in this, I'm participating in some kind of a, some kind of an under the table transaction? So the question is, is that something that we ought to be involved in? Well, let's put together a couple of passages and principles that I think will help us here. And the first of those is here in Romans chapter 13. Look in verse 1. Romans 13 verse 1, Paul says here, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That passage affirms very, very clearly that we are subject to the governing authorities. God has delegated a measure of authority to civil government. And so what that means is, is that means if somebody comes along and they say, Hey, I've got this scheme, I've got kind of this, this little workaround that somehow I can cheat the government on this and they don't end up getting my money and getting into my pocket. Hey, I know of a way that I can evade having to pay my taxes and evade the various laws of the land about taxes. Then what a Christian's just going to have to say is they're just going to have to say, I, I, I can't be involved in that. This is not something that I can do because of what God says here. In fact, Paul says even more directly talking about the taxes thing. Look in verse 6. In verse 6, Paul says, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. I'll be candid with you. I'm not the biggest fan of the infernal revenue service myself. But the Bible commands us to pay our taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so for a Christian... The idea of any kind of illegal or unlawful activity that is trying to sidestep in some way what the laws of the land require, that for us, that just needs to be a deal breaker. Now, let me add to that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as Paul is discussing this collection that had been taken for the poor saints, the needy saints in Jerusalem, I want you to please notice what he says in verse 18. Because what we have here is we have kind of this big, this big collection of cash. This big collection of money. And it is traveling now to the place where it needs to go. It's traveling to Jerusalem, probably having to travel for several days, maybe even several weeks in order to get there. What's Paul do about that? 
In 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. We're going to send some guys to bring this money to this place. We don't know who specifically he's talking about here in verse 18. Some have suggested maybe he's talking about Luke. Maybe he's talking about Titus. Maybe it's somebody entirely different. Verse 19, though, and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our goodwill. Verse 20, we take this course. The reason we're going to all these links, verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Paul says here that Christians, we take every precaution to always make sure that everything is above board. We're always making sure that everything is on the up and up. We want to make sure that there is no question at all about our integrity and about our dealings. One translation actually renders verse 21 this way. We are careful to be honorable before the Lord, and we want everyone else to see that we are honorable. And I think that's key. Because not only do we stay away from clearly illegal activities, but Christians are going to try to steer clear even of activities that just kind of look shady. We strive to be free from any trace of, of deceit or duplicity. We want to be blameless. We want to be above reproach. Now, before I leave this question, I want to just add one more little additional note here, especially in the spirit of this morning's sermon about having an optimistic point of view. I want to say here that when we maybe are dealing with folks and we encounter these sorts of occasions from time to time, Let's not just immediately jump the gun and assume the worst about people. Somebody comes to you and they ask, hey, could you pay cash for that? Let's not immediately jump to the conclusion, tax evader, crook, cheat. Let's not do that. Christians instead, let's be people who are always operating in good faith. And we're always trying to assume the very best out of our fellow man. Certainly not trying to suggest that we ought to be just naive and gullible and be taken. But at the very same time, I'm also not sure that God expects us to be the FBI. And we've got to get every single detail about every single thing and about how everybody does their business. I just don't think that we just need to be the, the judges about that. But I will say this. When we know, when we know that this transaction that's going on, that either it's illegal or it just looks really, really shady and it may end up compromising our influence or our reputation, then I think that's probably when we need to say, hey, I just I just don't think I can do that. I think I'm just going to have to take my business elsewhere. I believe those two big principles really, really answer just about every scenario that we're going to find ourselves in when it comes to those things. Let's turn our attention now to the Old Testament in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings chapter 16, we read here about the reign of King Ahaz. In 2 Kings chapter 16... Look at the first three verses. In 2 Kings 16, beginning in verse 1, In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. Instead, verse 3, 
He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even, he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel. Now, this second question has to do with how we reconcile what's mentioned there in verse 3 about the practice of child sacrifice. How do we reconcile that with what most, if not all of us, know already about the story of Abraham and Isaac? In fact, the question just goes like this. In 2 Kings chapter 16... Offering a child is clearly labeled as despicable. But isn't that what Abraham was going to do to Isaac? How do we balance out these two accounts? Well, how about we just go over to Genesis chapter 22 and let's just look at the Abraham account in Genesis chapter 22. Notice what the text says there in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. In Genesis 22 and in verse 1, the Bible says, After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. He said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That is, in many ways, almost inconceivable that God would ask Abraham to do that. And of course, lots of Christians, in fact, even lots of non-Christians, have really struggled with all of this. I'm going to tell you, I struggle with aspects of what's going on in Genesis 22. I don't understand everything about what's going on here. There is lots of uncertainty about the events that unfold in this chapter. So what is going on there? What exactly is happening here, especially since in 2 Kings chapter 16 and amongst other places, the idea of offering a child, that's considered a blatant abomination unto God. Well, I'm going to tell you that the only way that we can really treat the text fairly in Genesis chapter 22 is just say what it says. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. God is asking for a human sacrifice. Let's keep in mind that this is pre-law of Moses. At least three times once the law of Moses is given, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and Deuteronomy 18, the people are told specifically that such practices as this are not to be done. But even in pre-law times, this was abhorrent conduct. To any thinking and rational and sane person, this is wrong. Even more so, what kind of takes this to a whole nother level is the fact that Isaac... He's the child of promise. He is the child that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for for so long. He is the child that God is going to work through in order to bring about His promises, specifically the promise of the Messiah. And so everything about this, from every conceivable angle, it seems to be saying, this is a mistake. God, this can't be. I shouldn't do this, Abraham must have thought. There's no way that this could be right. And rather than trying to lessen the magnitude of that, and I do think that sometimes when we talk about this story, we do tend to try to, we want to try to downplay it a little bit. What I'd actually like to do is I'd actually like to kind of crank that up considerably. If you read Genesis chapter 22, and you come away from this chapter thinking, how could God ask someone to do this? This is a terrible thing to ask a father to do. If that's what you're thinking, you are exactly on the right track. This is a substantial and severe 
test. That's what verse 1 said, didn't it? God is testing Abraham here. Because it asked Abraham to do something that he just absolutely could not bear to do. You know, if God comes to me and He says, Josh, don't mow your lawn for a month. Okay. I'm cool with that, God. No problem there. Now, if God comes to me and He says, Josh, don't drink Mountain Dew for a month. That'd be a little bit harder. It would be. It would be a little bit harder. But you know what? That doesn't even begin to compare with the magnitude of what God is asking Abraham to do here. In Abraham's time, there were human sacrifices. And it is very detailed how those sacrifices took place. It began by slitting the sacrificial victim's throat. The victim was then cut into a number of pieces and dissected. And then, just like with animal sacrifices, that body was then completely and totally consumed by the fire. And so when God said what He said there in Genesis chapter 22 and in verse 2, there could not have been anything that Abraham would have wanted to do less than this right here. God was asking him to really just go against common sense, to go against his natural affection for his son, to go against the very hope and purposes of the promises that God had given. But instead of caving in to maybe some doubts, Instead of caving into unbelief, what Abraham does here in the following verses is he obeys God, doesn't he? He's ready to obey God. Even though he doesn't understand everything about this, even though he probably doesn't even agree with this, I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to do this. Abraham is acting in faith. And in doing so, he is being obedient to the commands that God has given him. And that's the key here. In fact, when Abraham's talked about in the New Testament, that's just what's reiterated over and over again. He was a man who acted by faith. And that, of course, makes that extremely different from what's going on in 2 Kings chapter 16, right? In 2 Kings chapter 16, Ahaz, he's not acting in faith, acting upon a command given to him by God. No, Ahaz is murdering his child without a command from God to do so. And on top of that, he's doing it in service to an idol, to a false god. In fact, in Genesis chapter 22, what seems to us as being inconceivable in verse 2, it ends up being stopped in verse 12. You know the rest of the story, don't you? The angel of the Lord stops him from moving further. There is not a human sacrifice that takes place in Genesis chapter 22. God stays Abraham's hand. Isaac is not sacrificed. And so, just kind of a cursory reading, first glance of these passages, these two accounts, they may seem to be somewhat similar, but in reality, there is an enormous difference between the two. One is a story of faith and obedience that results in life. The other is a story of sin and rebellion and evil that results in death. And that's an important distinction. And in fact, we need to think an awful lot about the Genesis 22 account because it teaches us so much about faith in practice even for our lives today. All of that then brings us to this last question this evening. And it was asked, I want you to know, this was asked by, I believe, a very sincere questioner. And the question is this. Why didn't Jesus ever condemn slavery? It's been my observation 
that folks tend to cut Jesus a pass for not specifically condemning practices that maybe are very relevant to us today, like like abortion or gay marriage. And those are very relevant to us today, but maybe they weren't as relevant in first century times. I'm not saying that those things didn't happen, but maybe they were not as widespread and as publicly known as they are now. And so we're kind of willing to give Jesus a pass on that because, well, it just wasn't that big of a pronounced deal back then. But when it comes to an issue like this, like slavery, folks seem to be a little bit less forgiving with the Lord. Especially when you consider that in first century times, in the Roman Empire, an estimated one-third of the entire population were slaves. That would have made slavery a very relevant issue in that day and in that time. And while it is true that not all forms of first century slavery involve harsh taskmasters and cruel treatment and people being beaten and, and maybe even being killed as a slave, I do think as well it would be foolish for us to just assume that all slaves were just treated really, really well. That they all got to live in the big house. They all got treated just like one of the family. I'm guessing that probably was not so. So the question is, why didn't Jesus address the issue of slavery? Again, that would have been a very relevant subject in the time and in the place in which he lived. Why didn't he seize upon that moment and just say a couple of words about slavery and just put an end to all of that? Let me offer just a few ideas for our consideration tonight. First and foremost, I need to just state emphatically that Jesus did not come to earth for the purpose of bringing about political or social reform. That was not His mission. If you look over in Luke, the 12th chapter, what you'll find here is a good example of Jesus as He always did. He just stays on task. In Luke chapter 12, Somebody comes up to Jesus in verse 13 and he says, Lord, we need some help here. I need you to get involved in this. In Luke chapter 12, look in verse 13. In Luke 12 verse 13, somebody in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I love Jesus' response, verse 14. Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? I think that passage well illustrates how Jesus was not going to allow Himself to be drawn into every squabble, into every fuss, into every argument, into every issue that was going on in His world around Him. Jesus was not about this business. Jesus was about the business of spiritual things. You remember what Jesus said about His kingdom in John the 18th chapter? As He stood before Pilate, And Pilate is fishing around for something, for anything that he could use against Jesus. Jesus responds in John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered him, My kingdom, it is not of this world. Jesus was not concerned primarily about the things of this physical and temporal world. Jesus was concerned about spiritual things, eternal truth. Jesus was concerned about souls. If you were to go to Jesus and you were to ask Him, Hey, Jesus, well, what did you come to earth to do? You know, well, what's the point of you coming to this place? Jesus will tell you. In Mark chapter 10, in Mark chapter 10 and in verse 45, Jesus, just here, just get right to the point. Here's why I came to this earth. Mark 10 verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus was not here to change people's temporal lot in life. 
Jesus came here to bring about freedom from spiritual slavery. After all, what good would it do to change and alter people's temporary surroundings here on this earth if they still end up dying in their sins and going to hell? That's not going to do any good at all for anybody. The truth of the matter is, slavery to the devil, that is far worse than any kind of slavery to a Roman taskmaster or to any other human taskmaster. Jesus came to set people free from the very worst kind of slavery of all, the kind of slavery that ends up having eternal implications. And the way that Jesus went about doing that, the way that He went about bringing about that kind of change, was not by drumming up some big political campaign. It was not by circulating a petition. It was not by organizing a grassroots movement or putting together an army to lead a revolt against the man. No, Jesus brought about change by changing men and women's hearts. You know, even if Jesus had spoken specifically about the issue of slavery in the first century... The truth is, slavery was not the only social ill in the Roman world that Jesus failed to address. There were lots of problems in that first century Roman society. For example, people in first century times were bitterly and unfairly taxed. I mean, just in a horrendous sort of way. Jesus, how about you say something about that? How about you say something about tax reform? Or what about women? Women in that culture and in that time, they didn't have very many rights. Some religions didn't have any rights at all. Jesus, could you do something about that? Could you maybe just preach a little sermon or say a couple of sentences about equality for women? Or what about how the Roman government was just so oppressive? People had no democratic uh, opportunities in that particular government. The Roman government just bludgeoned people into submission. Jesus, could you maybe just drop a line about the tyranny of the Caesars? See, the list just goes on and on and on of all the problems that existed in that time. And if Jesus spends all of His time addressing all of the problems and all of the social ills and all the the political issues that were going on in that time, trying to make the world a better place, then when is Jesus ever going to have time to get around to talking to people about what's most important? And that is the matters of the soul, the matters of eternity, the matters of heaven and hell. I'll say again, Jesus did not come here to change the world and to make the world a better place. Jesus came here to change hearts so that one day people could go and live in a better place. That place, of course, is heaven. Now, having said all that, you'll notice i got one little spot left there because i got one more thing to say. Can I just say this? Jesus did condemn slavery. Somebody asked the question, why didn't Jesus condemn slavery? Are you kidding me? Haven't you read the Bible? Jesus absolutely condemned slavery. And no, I'm not talking about passages that Paul or Peter or some other apostle wrote. I'm talking about the red letters. Jesus absolutely condemned slavery. I'll show you in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, here as Jesus is winding down the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That one statement in slavery for every man and woman who truly practices the golden rule. 
that passage, and really many others like it, they contain clear admonitions about how to serve God and what it means to treat our fellow man with dignity and with love and with kindness and with respect. No one who is truly trying to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ can enslave another human being because the golden rule, the golden rule would forbid it. And that, that's Q&A night for the month of, what are we in now? May. Now, as we extend the invitation of the Lord, I think it's very appropriate for us to go back to that point right there. Why did Jesus come here? What was His primary objective? His primary objective was to provide the ransom that we needed to free us from the bondage and the slavery of sin. And that's what it's all about. And that's what the invitation of the Lord is all about. To offer anyone who is enchained and enslaved to Satan and to sin and to the course of this world, it's an opportunity to break free. And if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, and you're ready to break free from that enslavement, then you can do that right now. All things are ready for you to become a Christian. You will confess your faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son. And if you would be willing to submit yourself to the waters of baptism, you can be joined to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You'll be connected to Him. You'll be one of God's children. If you are a child of God, but maybe brother or sister, you have allowed yourself to go back to that slavery. You've allowed the devil to put the chains back on your hands and on your legs. Repent of that. You don't want to be in that position anymore. Come out of that. If you want to be slave to somebody, be a slave to God. Be a slave to Jesus Christ, serving Him, because that leads to heaven. If we can encourage you and help you in some way this evening, you simply need to come to the front and make it known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.